Morning, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the April the 12th edition of uh, our Wednesday night regular program. Thank you for joining along just a little bit after 8 o'clock. Tonight, we're going to be talking about severe weather. And I know um, if you live here in the southeast, you've been uh, rocked around for the past few weeks with severe weather. So we have Trish Palmer on with us tonight uh, from the National Weather Service in Greenville, Spartanburg. We was also going to have Cindy LaCord on uh, from the National Weather Service in Wilmington, but Sandy has uh, come down with some kind of illness, sent us an email earlier today, so uh, we uh, send our best wishes and well wishes to Sandy, hoping that she will uh, feel better soon, and uh, we have Sandy booked on in June to talk about rib currents, so uh, she'll be back on the program later on in a couple of um, couple of months. This is a live broadcast tonight, so if you are watching, please feel free to interact with us. Uh, you can do that a few ways. Uh, you can comment on our Facebook page, or uh, if you have any questions, send them in via Twitter. Carolina WX Group is where you can find us. And, excuse me, if you're uh, watching us on a rebroadcast or listening to the podcast, uh, we'll uh, let uh, Tricia maybe share the National Weather Service and GSB's uh, uh, Twitter handles to you later on, and uh, you can direct questions that way. But uh, it has been an active week, but not as active this week. Kind of a, a little bit of a break uh, for much of the southeast. Uh, I will say here in the western Carolinas, we're dealing with yet again another wildfire. This one uh, again in McDowell County, the uh, Dobson Knob fire. It's around uh, 550 acres as of yesterday. I uh, haven't seen an update as of today, and I haven't looked in the past hour. So I'll do that in just a second, see if it's been updated. But the Dobson Knob fire started um, Sunday evening. And, uh, yeah, Sunday evening. And it's uh, progressed to 550 acres, 10% contained. And with no foreseeable real rain chances in the area, we're expecting that to grow over the next few days. Uh, and also those good old air quality alerts are uh, issued for many uh, – Areas in the foothills, code orange air quality today and again tomorrow. Besides that, it's been kind of uh, sunny, partly cloudy with temperatures in the 70s and low 80s. So kind of uh, a little relaxed weather since uh, we've had the severe weather over the past couple of weeks. So let's go down to another relaxed area. Well, maybe I see James is working. Ah, he's there. Let's go down to the Charlotte area with James Briarton. James, how are you and how's Charlotte? Uh, Charlotte's good. Thanks for asking. James is good. Um, I was actually turning to my left here to uh, interact with those of you watching tonight on Facebook Live, in addition to our YouTube Live. And, and of course, shout out to all those playing back our uh, podcast. Uh, our friend Meredith in Charleston, South Carolina is watching again tonight, and she was with us last week, you may remember, uh, for the duration of our live severe weather coverage. So, uh, Meredith, good to see you again, and welcome back to our regular scheduled Wednesday night show. Uh, she does want to know about the weather in Charleston, so we'll get to uh, our friend Shay in a moment, who I'm sure could give us all sorts of wonderful um, interludes about the weather in Charleston. But here in Charlotte, it's been nice. Um, some of you may know I work from home. been sitting outside a little bit trying to uh, get some work done, uh, although the pollen typically has me running uh, back in. Otherwise, other than that, I think no news is good news. It's been relatively quiet. I own a bike now, and so uh, we've been enjoying the Greenway here on the south side of town, Four Mile Creek and uh, McAlpine Creek, Greenway, Pineville to South Charlotte. So it's been good, Scotty. It's been good. Yeah, I was I was commenting to Shay earlier before the show started. It, it um, the, just the pollen everywhere. I mean, it is it's really picked up in the past week or so. So, 
Uh, yeah, definitely. And my allergies are definitely feeling the effects of that. So another guy who uh, was out and about earlier this week was Mr. David Reese commented on cutting his grass. And I said, yeah, that means we have allergies now. So David's house, everything up in the Charlottesville area. Oh, it's great. And you said me cutting the grass. Well, I live in an apartment complex, oh. so they cut the grass Thank for God. me even better. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, that was after a run first grass cut of the year, I want to say at my apartment complex. So it's that time of year again. Everything is blooming. Grass is growing. Trees are budding. Flowers are looking pretty. And unfortunately, that is wrecking havoc on many of the people in the newsroom here. Me? So far, so good. We'll, we'll see how we feel in a, another week or so. But uh, it, it's been rather quiet here the past couple of days. We did have some severe storms in our backyards uh, last Thursday. I got to pull a 7 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. shift because of that. So that was entertaining. Got to see some Pea to dime-sized hail here locally. Had numerous trees down on Interstate 64 just east of town here in Fluvanna and Louisa counties. Um, that was around lunchtime. And then since then, steady as she goes, maybe being able to squeeze out a raindrop here or there as we get into Easter weekend. Chances not looking the greatest, but hey, we'll take any chance we can get at this point. And after that, I mean, not a whole lot to talk about. Been getting out and running and enjoying the nice warmer weather we've been able to squeeze out here over the past couple of days with 87 yesterday at show, 90 in Louisa yesterday. He's back into the lower 80s today and will ease back even more the next couple of afternoons. Holy moly, 90 degrees. Yeah, one location. Wow. Just hit 90 yesterday. Good stuff. I think they got you beat, Shay. How was uh? How's things down there in Charleston? Actually, things are really pleasant here in Charleston. We, we don't, we're not looking to get any rain anytime soon. We're sort of in this, this sort of a, uh, a one-two pattern where we get the, the an Atlantic high pressure. It's more of a, a flattened Bermuda high that presents a, what's called a subtropical ridge. And what that means is just sort of mild to modest southeasterly winds uh, that don't bring a lot of moisture in off the ocean. The water temperatures are still cool around 68, 69 degrees. And uh, there's not a lot of moisture associated with this system. Then we have a, a, a weak cold front dropping into the area right now. Uh, a few showers north of Charleston up around the Wilmington, just inland North Carolina, uh, over by Florence, South Carolina. I think where I saw some earlier. Um, but this front's going to kind of fizzle out. It's going to get pushed to the south down all the way through Georgia. Uh, and the next area of high pressure is going to replace exactly what we're seeing now. So we're looking for another mild to modest southerly or southeasterly wind over the weekend. A few clouds, maybe a little bit of pile up inland, just along the sea breeze front, uh, but but really mild temperatures. And we're talking upper 70s to low 80s, so beautiful weather so far. Uh, a little bit dry, could use a little bit of rain. Uh, we're on the back end of the pollen, so that's starting to fizzle out. But other than that, it looks like a pretty nice beach weekend ahead for most folks if they can take a little bit of that cool breeze off the, the ocean surface, uh, off those cooler shelf waters. It should be really nice out there. But overall, we're doing great down here, man. I'm jealous. I've been watching some of the webcams of uh, the beaches down there this week, and uh, it seems like spring break's really in full swing. A lot of people out on the beach and good weather for it, so I'm glad that's going to stick around. So let's uh, – I will say Ricky Matthews will join us at some point tonight. Um, his computer decided to do a Windows update uh, right before the show, so 
Uh, you guys know how that goes with that. So he'll be on shortly. But I do want to bring in our guest now, Trisha Palmer. She is a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Greenville, Spartanburg. This is Trisha's first time to our show. So, Trisha, welcome. And uh, our first question to you is, tell us how you caught the weather bug. What got you into the meteorology uh, aspects? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. All righty. Well, um, my grandparents and so my father and my aunt and uncle were in an f5 in kansas city when he was a kid um this is in uh, this is may 1957 this is the ruskin heights tornado that went through um i believe 44 people were killed it's one of those things that i grew up hearing the stories of that tornado all my life and then my dad was an air traffic controller so he had his weather observation certificate and he used to tell us when we were kids that um, he could say it was raining and we couldn't have uh, three other siblings. Little things like that, I'd always been interested in the weather. And of course, I was an 80s child, so uh, I learned my geography by watching the Weather Channel, things like that. Uh, I'd, the, the, the weather bug just sort of stayed with me all my life. I was always fascinated with it, and it was nice to be able to talk with my dad about it because he, he had a healthy fear of the weather. He never wanted to go into weather, but he, was, he always enjoyed it and was fascinated by it just because of the tornado that he'd been in. Um, fascinating stories of that, that particular event. And then in 97, a big outbreak went through um, central Arkansas, where I'm from, and I had been sort of teetering on the edge, should I do um, either music education or meteorology, and a lot of that was being able to stay in state, which my parents could afford, or going out of state, which my parents couldn't afford, and um, I really decided at that point that I wanted to try to make meteorology work. This was my passion, this is what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how I was going to do it, and so my dad took me up to the National Weather Service office in Little Rock, and there I met a guy who was a, he was at NSSL at the time and he was from central arkansas and he told me then about the academic common market um and that boy that really saved me i was able to get in-state tuition at oklahoma to go to undergrad there and then um i'm sorry he wasn't at nssl at the time he was a step that's the former um is now the pathways program with the national weather service which is where you're a student intern and you're paid but he was about to go to nssl so one of the forecasters there said hey this position is going to be open are you interested and i said yeah, I'd love it because they're really, since there aren't any schools for meteorology in Arkansas, there hadn't been a lot of interest uh, from, from students in the past as far as volunteering and stuff like that. So, I mean, it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time when this guy was moving from his skep position at Little Rock to the to NSSL and he was going into his senior year when I was going into my freshman year. So I started at the in the Weather Service um, right after I turned 19. I was very, 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 very young at the time. And so right after my freshman year at OU. And, um, I've, you know, obviously I've never looked back. I've been in the Weather Service ever since. Um, graduated from Oklahoma in 2002. And then when my... Uh, then fiance, but shortly after that, husband and I were looking at um, uh, graduate schools because he's also in meteorology. We decided on North Carolina State, and part of that was because we, I was able to transfer my position from the office in Little Rock to the office in Raleigh. So we spent the next three years um, in Raleigh. We both got our master's degrees at North Carolina State, and then I got a forecaster position at the National Weather Service office in Atlanta. Um, and then my husband at the time then was trying to just get in within a day's drive of me. So he started at the Lower Mississippi River Forecast Center in Slidell, Louisiana. So we did the, the, the six hour commuting thing for a while, but then he was able to get up to the Atlanta office at the River Forecast Center there in Peachtree City. 
so I was there for almost 10 years and um, now I'm here. I came here to the Greenville Spartanburg office in March of 2015. So I've been here just over two years and we love it. It is a, uh, I forgot to turn the mute button off there. It is a great area. I mean, you get a little bit of everything living here in Western North Carolina, the upstate of South Carolina. Uh, before we get into the show, is there any memorable events, uh, you know, maybe covering in Little Rock or Raleigh or even in the Atlanta office or even here at GSV, kind of stick in your mind? Remember uh, that oh, moment, you know, a storm system or something like that? Um, the, when I was doing all of my radar training at Raleigh, that was the hurricane season 2004, and I swear it was like every 10 days there was the remnants of a tropical cyclone coming through the Carolinas. It kept us very busy with all the tornadoes, uh, kept us hopping. The, um, the, the couple of big memorable events that I have from, um, from the Atlanta, well, there's a whole, there's, there's a slew of them. Um, Atlanta's got a lot of weather in that WFO as well. Um, I say WFO, weather forecast office. I'm sure most of your viewers know that. Um, but we, that, that office covers 96 counties from the Tennessee state line down to about the Americas area, which is just north of Albany. Uh, so lots, lots of different weather, uh, lots of variety of weather there. So a couple of the things that really stand out was uh, only my second event to really work radar. Um, we ended up with a, an outbreak and in Georgia that's defined as six tornadoes. So we had six tornadoes with this event and I missed a tornado. Um, I had a severe thunderstorm warning out on it, but being one of my first events, I was still sort of new to it. And it ended up being an F3 and I was devastated. I was like, what the heck happened? How did I miss this? So I spent the next three years of my life doing research on it. I published an NWA Digest article back when they did digests. So um, fascinating event and it's amazing how you, it's one of the best ways to learn is you don't want to ever miss events, but you, you first of all, learn a lot of humility. And then by going back and looking at it and really trying to delve into what happened, um, you can learn a lot of meteorology that way. Uh, obviously, the uh, Atlanta Snow Jam of 2014, incredibly memorable because it was sandwiched. Um, right after that was the AMS meeting in Atlanta, and then after that was uh, the uh, a huge ice storm that hit the Carolinas, uh, especially down in the Midlands of, of South Carolina and eastern Georgia. Um, the other big memorable event that will always stick with me is the um, Atlanta tornado in 2008. And I didn't actually work that particular event. I was coming in to work the next day because we had a moderate risk out for the next day. Um, and it was craziness because the MIC and a couple people we were handling, we were getting calls from BBC and Reuters and the Associated Press asking about the Atlanta tornado. And here we are in the middle of another outbreak. So we're having to tell them, you know, I can't talk right now. Um, we're doing a survey at the time that there are now new tornadoes on the ground. And there was a, a storm that hit um, in northwest Georgia in the Rome area. Uh, it came out of Alabama and Birmingham had a tornado warning on it. So I issued a warning. Um, the rotation didn't look all that great, but we're, at that point we were looking 7,000 feet up. So I figured, you know, better be safe than sorry. And then like 30 minutes later, the rotation really picked up. I mean, we're talking uh, um, 45 knots of rotational velocity, which is, uh, that's impressive in Georgia. So um, I, I was sitting there and I was biting my nails and I told somebody, you need to call the emergency manager up there because um, this is looking really bad. And it was amazing because the emergency manager was able to, there were, there were a group of firefighters out fighting a fire from a lightning strike that had come from the anvil of the storm. 
and he was able to pull the firefighters out of the out of harm's way and the tornado ended up going right through there it was in, it ended up being a high-end df3 so it's one of those moments that this is real this is why we do this um you know i i don't actually go out there and save lives i don't do the work i don't fill sandbags i don't pull people out of harm's way but i can provide the decision support information so that people can take the action that they need to save their own lives so that was that was a very rewarding moment that's that's an awesome story i mean uh, i know david you you were down in the area too i'm, I'm not sure if you're Times maybe interact with each other because David was at the Macon station. Columbus. Columbus, Columbus, yes. That's Columbus. right. I remember him on chat a few times. Yep. And you know Robert Garcia and everything else. I went to school with him. So yeah, I remember I remember your name on chat numerous times in 2011 and then uh, 2013, 2014, oh, all the yeah. snows, everything else. It's yeah. it was fun, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's a big weather area. Oh yeah. Well, talking about big weather, uh, this is April and we kind of promote severe weather awareness. So tonight, that's why we kind of brought you on to talk about the severe weather that affects uh, not only North and South Carolina, but Georgia here in the Southeast. Um, I guess, first of all, I, I think Ricky may have posted this question to our Facebook page and Ricky jump in if, if, if I'm wrong, but I think he kind of proposed a question is, what is severe weather to you? What is a severe thunderstorm to you? Uh, a lot of people may say, you know, rain, lightning, thunder, but it actually has specific definitions. So um, I guess we can just start the conversation there, kind of talking about definitely what a severe weather or a severe thunderstorm is and, and the elements that affect us here in the southeast. Okay, well, I'm going to um, I actually have a little, trying to turn on my screen share here. There we go. Yep, if you get that up, I'll make sure to present it to everyone. There. Um, is that is it showing up? Not yet. We're getting a blank screen. A blank screen. Like try the exact window that it's on. Sometimes they'll try to pull you up. There we go. That's there we go. All right. All right. So and you're good. Okay. All right. So there is your definition of a severe thunderstorm. We're looking for wind gusts of uh, 50 knots, which is 58 miles per hour or greater. Um, hail one inch, which is quarter size um, in diameter or greater. A, a tornado does make a thunderstorm. It does count as a severe thunderstorm, although at that point we don't just want to have a severe thunderstorm warning out. Um, heavy rain, lightning. They do uh, lightning is part of the definition of a thunderstorm, not a severe thunderstorm. That's just something that um, uh, we do have information on that, but um, because we can only provide so much guidance with lightning, it's getting better, especially now with the the the, the especially Go 16 now with the GLM. Um, hopefully, we're going to be able to start providing more information on lightning, but it does not make a thunderstorm severe. So again, it's the wind, the hail, and the tornadoes. Now, the a proxy for wind gusts. Um, if we have two or more trees down in say a, a, a similar location as you can see on the picture here if we got if we have a couple of trees down in, in, a, in a generic in a localized area we can use that as a proxy for 50 knot winds we all know that some trees like bradford pears come down with 30 mile per hour winds it doesn't, doesn't seem to take much um, and especially say after we've had a very heavy rain event, sometimes trees come down a little earlier. So internally, when we're issuing severe thunderstorm warnings, we sometimes will adjust our thresholds. We might not see 50 knots on radar. We might only see 40 knots, 
but if we think it's going to bring down trees, we'll still make a we'll still go ahead and issue a severe thunderstorm warning. Trisha, that's a really good point about the types of trees that you're looking for when people are, are forwarding pictures to you through social media. Bradford pears. I mean, when you start seeing pine trees and poplars and oaks over, then you know you probably have some pretty strong winds. That's uh, I like that point that you made. That yeah. And Trisha, we see here in the southeast, um, obviously we get severe thunderstorms with fronts moving through, but also in the summertime, especially, you know, where we live here in the area, uh, and Shay, I'm going to bring you on with this as well, you know, we could get a sea breeze thunderstorm, you know, sea breeze causing thunderstorms. We also just get those average everyday run-of-the-mill thunderstorms, and sometimes in the summertime, they can be quite severe. So kind of talk about the different types of setups that that give us thunderstorms here in the in the Carolinas and throughout the southeast? The main thing that we're looking at for thunderstorm prediction is going to be um, uh, you need you need three ingredients moisture instability and lift to make uh, to make to get deep convection so moisture is I'd say usually a given in the, in the southeast. We've got lots of moisture down here with uh, both Atlantic and Gulf moisture nearby um, and then the instability and lift um, uh, instability is the uh, ability for obviously these storms to bubble up, to have convection, to have some sort of rising motion in the atmosphere. And lift, usually we think of something like a cold front or like you mentioned, a sea breeze, any any sort of uh, change in air mass, a boundary that may move. That could even be sometimes during, during pulse thunderstorm season, we get outflow boundaries and we can talk about that some more and get into the details of what an outflow boundary is. But that's sort of like a mini cold front, so that can develop additional storms along those boundaries. So moisture instability and lift is what you need for deep moist convection. Um, to make a thunderstorm severe, you probably want a, a little bit of shear, and shear is either turning to change wind direction or speed with height. So different amounts of shear will lead to different types of thunderstorms. If you have very low shear, but a lot of instability, which is what we have in the summertime with lots of heat, but there aren't any cold fronts or anything coming through. That's when we get our pulse thunderstorms. And they, they're they very hard to predict motion. They sort of just propagate around and then another window will develop on an outflow boundary of a previous thunderstorm. So they're just all over the place. It's a big mess. Um, when you start adding a little bit of shear to the environment, that's when you can get your multi-cell cluster type systems um, uh, maybe even with, with a slightly higher, like moderate shear, you can get the squall lines, the QLCS, um, quasi-linear convective systems. When you get a lot of shear, um, that's when we're looking at supercell thunderstorms. We don't get a lot of supercells here. More often than not, we might have what we call a high shear, low cape situation. Um, and that's when we get the, the, the either like the mini supercells or more often the, the QLCS tornadoes, which are very, again, very hard to predict and very hard to pinpoint, especially uh, when you've got the, the terrain influences that we have here. So generally, the, the, the combination of shear and instability will determine what kind of convection you have. We're more likely to get the supercellular type convection uh, during our spring severe weather season or there's a secondary maximum in the fall sometimes. Um, pulse thunderstorms all summer long you can occasionally get them in the late spring sort of like what we had tonight and then of course these multi-cell clusters these multi-cell systems squall lines QLCS those are going to be more likely with higher shear but lower cape which can frankly happen anytime from fall winter 
uh, spring, less often during the summer, of course. But if, this, if the overall prevailing atmospheric air masses are correct, you can get that then. But more often than not, it will be pulse thunderstorms in the summer. And Shay, we, um, we've had you talk about Piedmont Trophy, maybe for uh, some of those uh, followers who are watching tonight that you have not seen that episode. Kind of talk to us a little bit about how the sea breeze affects uh, thunderstorm development, not only where you live there along the coast, but also in the, in the inland areas. Right, yeah, uh, good question, Scotty. So that was that was really well said, Trish. I mean, wow, that was um, that was a lot of information, small amount of time. So that's really good. But uh, I've seen a lot of correlation with the sea breeze to all the way up into Greenville, Spartanburg area, even as far as, as Atlanta. The connection to the sea breeze. Uh, most people think of the sea breeze as just some wind that comes in off the ocean, and it, and it generally is, but it's much more than that. It's it is a cold front that moves onto land from the sea along the land sea interface. And what we look for generally is upper flow that feeds that sea breeze in the in the heat. So you have lifting, you have thermals, you have heat that's rising, you have uh, moisture and instability. That wind go, goes aloft, and then there's a stronger jet aloft that pushes that wind over the coastline, where it condenses and sinks, and then funnels right back in along the surface. So that creates what's called a circulation, and that circulation can draw that drag that sea breeze or push that sea breeze further inland in, as time goes on. Uh, and it really lines up along the South Carolina coast inland uh, several miles, 20 to 30 miles at times, and it can really just fire off thunderstorms. We see that from the beaches here uh, as uh, we call it the anvil lineup or the marching anvils. Uh, you can see from the beach, they generally will fire off in the afternoon during the peak heating or even later in the afternoon, and they'll march towards the coast and sort of fizzle out. So that's uh, generally the setup. It just depends on what kind of sea breeze you're talking about there. But the connection, what I've always loved about um, studying the thunderstorm activity inland along the Piedmont, when I say Piedmont trough, what it is is areas where there's moisture and instability, pockets of that all around, which all feed that upper flow to the coastline. So there's all kinds of things involved. There. There's uh, soil content is a big one uh, that if there's any, if there's rains and storms and there's clays and loams and more soil uh, retention type or retention type soils that hold that moisture, when the day heats up, there's not a lot of wind when you get to the mid-state in the morning to the early, in, I'm sorry, about midday time. There's a lot of moisture and instability with that heat, especially in the middle of the summer, that triggers those thunderstorms. They pop very fast and they blow up very fast because those areas are still retaining that moisture. So there's there's also swamps to consider and lakes, uh, lake breezes as well. So all around Lake Moultrie, Lake uh, Murray. Uh, what is the other one? Lake... Um, Oh, I always forget that, Lake Marion. Uh, so there, there's all kinds of moisture and river systems and, and swamp areas in the mid-state, upstate that all feed into this as well. But uh, the connection is definitely there from the coast. So just because uh, we're having a sea breeze here, that, that's all fed from faster outflow or return flow from these thunderstorms that are all the way to mid-state and upstate as well. So um, yeah, the sea breeze, sometimes the, the sea breeze front will pop at the end of the day and that front will propagate inland. We can see it on radar, and it'll go as far as where Tricia is in Greenville, Spartanburg area, even as far as Atlanta and even to the Appalachians at times, which is very rare, but uh, it does it does happen. Uh, so I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Tricia? Oh, uh, by the time it gets up here, where it's usually, because we're looking at that the sea breeze uh, circulation, we're more concerned about it when there's a 
stronger, deeper, southeasterly flow that'll bring it all the way up here. But then with that, we're going to have a little bit more shear. We might have a little bit more organized convection at that point. So you add to that the, the typical pulse-type thunderstorms that you might get that are maybe coming off the mountains a little bit, bring the sea breeze in, and it's always exciting to see, are they, you know, is it all going to kill each other, or is this going to blow up into some massive MCS or something like that? It's, 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 a, it's an interesting meteorological challenge when it comes all the way up here. Yeah, you're absolutely right, especially when those storms really, when they get pushed, when you have a really strong sea breeze uh, with, a, with a really robust Bermuda high pressure out in the Atlantic and a cold front coming, you get a little bit of prefrontal activity. That spills a little bit more moisture downslope uh, when you have those that, like I talked about earlier, the ground has a little bit of moisture, there's instability, and it causes these small circulations, which can instigate uh, what's called a mesolow, which is a big, it becomes a bit much bigger system and organized into an area of low pressure. And then it usually spins off towards North Carolina and over the Outer Banks and dissipates over the ocean. But uh, that's always fascinating to see, like the MCSs you were just talking about. Uh, but the, um, the sea breeze front can sometimes push very bullishly inland further and further, and then it'll actually uh, release what is called an outflow boundary, which is a burst of energy. It basically it just it just you know fires off a gust front that propagates inland, and then you have thunderstorms that are up in the Greenville-Spartanburg area, maybe even over in Aiken, Georgia, especially in that area, and they'll all combine together and collide, and then that sets off fireworks. So. That's the answer to the trivia quiz. If you ever see it, what happens when, when outflow boundaries collide is a whole line of thunderstorms explode out of that. So if uh, maybe that's a good segue for you, Tricia. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things that we, once we see those, it, it's fascinating because you can watch it on radar. You can watch the outflow boundaries approach each other. Um, and so when they do, there's a picture right there. So so when, when, those, uh, when, when the outflow boundaries start approaching each other, it's just a matter of, okay, where, which, where along that line is the convection going to fire? How bad is it going to be? Um, but like I said, it, it's a fascinating meteorological process when those two like, miniature cold fronts end up colliding. And that, this can happen all over the place during the summertime. You can have outflow boundary collisions all over the place, across the Carolinas, northeast Georgia, the, the Alabama, the deep south. This is, it, it can be, if you get a really big day, yeah, you've got uh, there's this popcorny pulse convection everywhere, and it's uh, impossible to actually predict where one's going to develop, um, but it keeps you hopping. It's really neat to see them on radar form, too. I mean, that's really, uh, really neat. We have a, a question from one of our Twitter followers, Craig Cece. Um, let me get to it just a second. <laughs> My phone decided it wanted to update. Uh, it said, question for Trish, can orographic lifting or upsloping on the Blue Ridge trigger thunderstorms and severe weather in the foothill areas of North Carolina. Um, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we see that if, if you watch, like, say, summertime convection, um, typically where we look at the thunderstorms uh, initiating first is in the Appalachian, along, especially along the Blue Ridge. Sometimes exactly where it initiates will depend on what the low-level flow is, um, but you're typically going to get because there's there's enough orographic lift just inherent with the southern Appalachians on, on their own. So yeah, and then if if, if with the prevailing though so usually weak westerly to northwesterly flow aloft, those thunderstorms will eventually drift off the mountains and then towards the uh, foothills and then the Piedmont. Um, if we have any deep layer shear usually very, very, very rare in the summer, but if we have any, sometimes what then happens is we get a little bit of uh, what we call stretching as it comes off the mountains. So imagine like a ballerina 
um, if she's a ballerina, let me a figure skater. So uh, she's spinning around, or he, either one, spinning around. And then when they raise their arms, they're they're stretching themselves, and so they end up spinning faster. This is conservation of angular momentum for the geeks amongst us. Um, so what happens with, with weather is when you get um, the stretching, so if a thunderstorm comes off higher terrain into lower terrain, it's, it's stretched. So then the, the, in, the internal spinning, the internal vorticity associated with that thunderstorm is able to increase a little bit. So you might actually have a brief increase in the severity of the storm as it's coming off the mountains before it just kills itself out if it's like one of those pulse thunderstorms. I've actually got a screen share here of... Uh I did a blog. See when uh, make sure you can see it here. And yeah, this was uh, this was a question Weather Service Charleston asked, and they, they asked what happened when boundaries collide. And you can see the boundaries kind of coming together. This is the sea breeze front right here. That is become an outflow boundary of sorts, and it's heading towards another outflow boundary that was produced by some heavy thunderstorms inland around the, along the Midlands. And then in the next video, you see what happens. And you can see that that giant line of fireworks that goes off. Those storms can be very intense, and those can actually trigger more outflow boundaries. So it's uh, it gets really intense all across the state when all this thunderstorm activity is converging towards each other in different ways. Uh, let's see if I can. This one's from Wilmington, Ohio, from 2014. Particularly decent rendition of it but you can see how many boundaries there are i mean there's there's about four or five i think right there and they just all kind of converge happen to be right near the um the radar imaging but you, you know once again with annotations you can see those little lines that converging towards the yeah there's five of them actually This is a common thing that happens in the southeast. So if you're out in your backyard or, or you're out and about, and all of a sudden the wind just picks up really fast out of nowhere, and there's no thunderstorms around, and the temperature drops, that's probably what you're experiencing. And Trisha, Trisha, talking about uh, these storms, uh, one thing that we have to deal with, everybody's worried about tornadoes. Tornadoes fascinate people so, so much. And I really definitely want to get into maybe a show on that sometime uh, later on in the year. But uh, wind, the damage and wind threat is a big thing, in, uh, especially in the GSP area. I would say that's probably the number one storm reports that you guys get is damage and winds. And, uh, you know, either it be tornado, rotating winds, straight line winds. Talk to us about the different types. A lot of uh, our areas see microbursts, and people may not understand what a microburst may be. Talk to us about the damage and wind aspects, maybe the difference between straight line wind, tornadoes, and maybe even uh, microbursts, because that is, uh, I, I think, is becoming more of a term that people are becoming familiar with, hearing it at least, but may not understand exactly what it is. Yes. Um, it's funny. I was actually on a storm survey once where we determined that the damage was from a uh, I don't remember if we determined that it was microburst or straight line winds right off the top of my head, but it wasn't a tornado. That was the point. And there was this elderly lady there who asked us, well, can we just say it's a tornado? And we said, why? It's not. She said that it sounds better at the beauty parlor. <laughs> that's, wow. <laughs> that, that'll, that's another one that will always stick with me. Sounds better at the beauty party, parlor. It's a uh, tornado. 
And that's a story. I, I don't understand. People are almost because uh, we've we've done a, a few surveys with you guys up in McDowell County, and, and the residents at the homes and stuff they'll they'll argue with you. You know, this has to be a tornado. It can't be anything but that. Yeah. I don't I don't understand what it is. Why people want it to be a tornado? I don't get it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to show here, I'm going to screen share again here. Um, this is a, a 10 year conglomeration of severe thunderstorm days per year. And you can see that right here across the GSP area, um, upstate uh, South Carolina into the uh, Western Piedmont of North Carolina, even maybe overlapping into parts of the foothills, has the maximum number of severe thunderstorm wind days, in this case per year. I can go back and we can look at hail days, and obviously you can see a, a big maximum out in the plains, but there's a, there's a localized maximum here um, in the Lee of the Appalachians as well. And even tornado reports, we've got a little bit of a maximum here as well. Um, but especially the, the, the severe thunderstorm winds, and then there's the severe weather reports. Some of that may be um, an artifact of the, let me undo my screen sharing, there we go. Some of that may be an artifact of the way we gather reports, and every office does it slightly differently, but there is a lot because we have the, the moisture and the instability here in the southern Appalachians, and we also have the lift associated with the topography. So like I said earlier, we can have those thunderstorms that are developing across the mountains. They come off the mountains, they stretch a little bit, and then they intensify before they die off. So um, when we're talking about straight line winds, microbursts, and tornadoes, these are the, the, what I, one, one of my favorite sayings is, frankly, it doesn't matter if the wind is out, straight, or in circles. It's still wind, and if the tree falls on your house, it doesn't really matter how it got there. The point is, we have a severe thunderstorm warning or a tornado warning, and we issue those for a reason. And when we issue them, I want people to take the proper precautions. Be prepared for any eventuality, because, again, if you have trees by your house and it falls on your house, your day is ruined. Your week is ruined. Your month may be ruined, depending on how bad the, the damage is. And, if you've got people in the house, you could have a much more significant problem. So it doesn't really matter in the end what caused the wind. And just to another point with the wind, wind sounds like wind sounds like wind. If it's in circles or if it's straight, it's going to most likely sound like a freight train. Um, so you could have a microburst coming through or straight line winds or a tornado and a lot of it's going to sound the same. The only difference that I've heard sometimes with a tornado um, is uh, sometimes people get some sort of, they hear uh, like a high-pitched whining with weaker tornadoes. And I've never heard it myself, but it, you know, take that for what it is. So what we're looking at, um, obviously tornadoes are a rotating column of air in contact with the cloud and the ground. There is no such thing as a tornado at treetop level. It has to be in contact with the ground, even if you might, even if you don't necessarily see the condensation funnel. Um, straight line winds are something that usually occur when we're looking at a, a QLCS or a squall line or something like that. So you get these what we call a strong rear inflow jet coming through the back from the back of the storm, and then it uh, descends down the, for lack of a better description, it descends down that line of convection and then it races out ahead at the surface. So those are straight line winds. A microburst is what we get usually during pulse thunderstorm season during the summertime. So what happens is this convection develops, it bubbles up. And you can see animations of this online. So, but we don't have, there's no shear. There's no uh, change in wind direction or speed with height. So the thunderstorm isn't being pushed away at the upper levels. So the thunderstorm sort of just develops in this one column. So it develops, 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 uh, it rains itself out. And with the rain-cooled air that comes down and it hits the ground in the 
highly technical, technological, meteorological term, uh, a splat. So it hits the ground like if you spill a glass of milk or a glass of water, it hits the ground, it goes out in all directions, and that is a downburst. Um, the difference between a, a microburst and a macroburst is really just a, a matter of size, extent, and really five miles. So if it's less than five miles in diameter, you're looking at a microburst. More than five miles in diameter, you're looking at a macroburst. Um, let me just show. I think Trisha. Oops, Trisha, I think you muted yourself by accident. There you go. I still there? Yeah, there you go. I think you muted yourself by accident. Uh oh. Um, let me um, screen share again. All right, do you guys see anything? Getting a blank screen for right now. There we go. Okay, let me uh, get you on presenting to everyone, and good to go. So, what are you seeing? Seeing a blank screen. There it goes. Okay, there we go. All right. So, what you see here is a picture of tornado damage, and this was a, um, a high-end EF3. And I don't know if you can see my mouse here. Can you see my mouse? It seems to be flickering for me. Is it flickering for you guys? Yeah, I don't, I don't see it. You don't see it. All right, let me try again. You gotta love technology. Thanks. <laughs> now, do you see a picture? Let's give it just a second to load. I know, I know, we got James working like a madman in the background. He's he's keeping our uh, Facebook live going. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of bandwidth being used right now. So bear with us. I, we we see the picture just fine. Okay. All right. So you see the picture now. This is a, an image of tornado damage, and this is a, uh, another high-end EF3, so it's a little bit more of a pronounced example. But you can see right here, I don't know if you can see my mouse, um, where I'm uh, pointing can, out right here. We can see your mouse now. All right, that's, you see the trees are just sort of mowed over. They're just completely snapped right there. And then down here at the bottom of the screen, they're all pointing towards the top of the screen. And then here at the, toward the center, they're all sort of pointed backwards. So you can clearly see the rotation associated with the tornado in this case. And in the center of the tornado, that's where the trees are just completely mowed down, snapped over, and then otherwise it's, it's rotating around. So this is a, a much more extreme example, but when we get the little tornado, say an EF0, EF1, if we look, stay, look down here at the, at the bottom of the screen, you can see that the trees are sort of falling in all directions, but tend to be sort of pointing towards each other. This is what we call a convergent pattern. These trees are falling, um, again, pointing sort of towards each other. On the flip side, here's an image of straight line wind damage. Um, so you can see that the trees in this case are all pointing the same direction or sort of even away from each other. This is more of a divergent pattern. So when we're out doing storm surveys, that's one of the things that we look for. Lots of times we hear, well, the tree was twisted off, uh, at the treetop level. Well, the tree itself being twisted has nothing to do with tornado or straight line winds. That has to do with the structural integrity of the tree itself. It's how the trees fall. 
um, again, is it, are they crisscrossed, are they converging, or are they like the splat, are they going out in different directions, are they divergent? So that's a big difference, it's one of the things that we key in on to tell the difference between straight line wind and tornado damage. But you guys can see in both of these pictures, if there was a house somewhere in all that, it frankly wouldn't have mattered, those trees are down all over the place. So um, in the end, um, you know, it, like I said, it can, it can end up being a very, very, very bad day for somebody who has a house in the middle of all that. And, and Trisha, I want to I hold this pictures right here for a second, and I want to bring you into this conversation, but I also want to bring in James and Ricky. Uh, both uh, James and Ricky are um, drawn pilot, uh, take a lot of uh, photos from their drawings and stuff. Do you guys in the National Weather Service use drones? And then Ricky, you and James maybe comment on how the drone coverage may be able to help with damage surveys as they become more popular, uh, you know, with everyone. We um, do not currently use drones. There are some offices that are starting to test drones, and Charleston may be one of those offices, actually. Um, but we aren't allowed to purchase them or use them yet. Usually what we'll do is we'll do a ground survey, or if we can get um, State Patrol, or used to be Civil Air Patrol, to, to take us up in a helicopter. Um, I've been up in the governor's helicopter in Georgia because uh, there was an event that was uh, so bad. Um, they were running out of helicopters for us to use. So that's where we usually, that helps us to find, go over areas that have no road access and just get a, a general overview of the link that we can much more easily find a starting point and an ending point if we're able to look aloft. If we could get drones, that would be awesome. If we could use drones or if we, there have been times that we've been sent drone videos and it's very, very, very helpful to see that kind of stuff. So uh, if we could increase the use of drones, I mean, that would really help with much more accurate surveying. As uh, Trish mentioned, there are some offices who are using drones. I know the Weather Service in Blacksburg is really big into drone use, and they partner with a few folks in their region to, uh, after storms happen, go out and do damage surveys, like she's saying. And there was a tornado they had. I believe it was the Appomattox tornado. They actually added, like, a good couple hundred yards to the track of it just because they were able to get above and see the track from the air versus not being able to see it from ground level. So there are significant advantages that come with drone technology. We actually took ours. I was just looking at a picture from Watauga Lake last year and to be able to see the damage from the air, you can perfectly see it's a microburst, but when you're down there on the ground level, you're just looking around and there are trees down everywhere and it just looks like utter destruction. Yeah, I took one out in, uh, I think it was on the Alabama side of the river there in Columbus uh, after, uh, I think we ended up concluding, or they ended up concluding it was some sort of wind damage, not a tornado. And, and David may even remember better than I did, but we actually went out with emergency management because I don't think it was something that the weather service was coming down to survey per se, but we took it out and we were able to get a, a pretty nice aerial view on, on just how many trees were down and... Uh, the direction in which they had fallen, which, like Ricky said, you can see from the ground, but, and, and as Trisha and Ricky both pointed out, is, you know, to get that scope, you can kind of get the full picture of exactly what it was. Very good. And, uh, Shay, I think you had a question. That yeah, while, while we're talking about drone coverage and reporting to the Weather Service, uh, we, you know, we, we've been trying harder and harder to get our audiences to report things to the Weather Service and the channels in which to use and, and what to what kind of tools to, to use when you're reporting hail, for instance. 
Uh, do you just put a piece of hail in your hand? Do you put a quarter next to it? I mean, there's all kinds of methods of reporting weather. Uh, I know that, that the weather services do a great job of doing storm spotter network and uh, classes, and they actually have things that you can participate in, volunteer to go and learn, and learn how to report these things. So, so Trish, talk a little bit about how your office uh, does outreach for the public to get information on thunderstorms in the area so that you have better knowledge of what happened for your local uh, storm reports. Yeah, um, like you mentioned, the, the storm spotter program, that's that's very helpful, but it is amazing how the, I mean, the, the increase in reports that we're getting on social media. You gotta be kind of careful and we've gotta use some um, verification techniques sometimes. There was a uh, an event, um, I remember in Georgia, where somebody said there was quarter-sized hail and we're there scratching our heads like, there's hardly even a storm there, how did that happen? So we asked this person to send us a picture and he sent us a picture and it was quarter-sized hail, and I'm like, something's wrong with this. So we we then Googled quarter-sized hail, and that was the first picture that came up. So he just got it off the internet. So you gotta be careful sometimes, and uh, you know, look at the metadata, and there are some verification techniques that you can use online. But um, the best way is if you could, if people want to provide information to us, and the more information we can have, the better. And there's a couple of reasons for that, and I can get into that in just a second. But if people are going to provide us reports, first of all, we need to know your location, um, the time that the event occurred, how long it lasted, and then the magnitude. Pictures are so helpful. Um, so like with hail, if you can't get a picture, compare it to the size of a coin. That's the best. But a coin or a ball. So um, nickel, penny, quarter, half dollar, dime, any of those things. If you can get a picture next to one of those coins, that's very helpful. Um, a ball, golf ball, ping pong ball, tennis ball. Um, and then once you get larger than, say, golf ball, tennis ball, hopefully not softball too often down here, but then you can get it into, into fruit, like um, grapefruit. Now, there are different sizes of grapefruits, obviously, but it, it gives us an idea. A grapefruit is pretty darn big if we ever got grapefruit-sized hail at that point, you know, it, four inches or 4.25 inches or it's, it's going to destroy your roof so um, but uh, and like with trees down um, if you could send us a picture that's that's fantastic that's uh, extremely helpful but at least tell us when it occurred and um, uh, where what your location it is it is so important to know your location and if you can include your county that's very helpful because sometimes there's these little little towns too um, zip codes are can be occasionally helpful but really um, uh, best thing is lat lawn, but if not, then, uh, you know, even a street address, you can send that to us privately if people don't want their street address known to everybody. The reason these, these reports are important, first and foremost, when we issue a severe thunderstorm warning, the first time we issue it, it's going to be based on our interpretation of the radar data. So we're looking at reflectivities aloft, we're looking at the temperatures aloft, is there a hail growth zone, it, for, we're talking about hail, for example. It's, it's based purely on science. Occasionally there's a report first and then we'll issue a severe thunderstorm warning, but usually it's gonna be based on science first. We'll say we're expecting quarter-sized hail, but we only get dime-sized hail out of it. We know that at that point we need to adjust our thresholds that maybe they, there's something going on in the atmosphere that we're not seeing that's not producing quarter-sized hail. So then we might not issue a severe thunderstorm warning downstream of the first warning. However, if we're expecting quarters and we start getting golf balls, then we know that we need to make that adjustment and increase it. So it's to adjust our internal thresholds and provide additional information to the public. We also do have to verify all of our warnings. Um, we have to report our statistics to Congress. 
So we do uh, do our best to verify all the warnings that we issue. We tend to do a pretty good job, especially with the severe and flash flood. Not, we probably have uh, between across the weather service anywhere from a 50 to 80 percent false alarm with with tornadoes, unfortunately. Um, but again, we're we're issuing those warnings based on the best science that we can provide at the time. And and always for those that are that are testing sizes of hail or frequent pictures, never walk out into it. Try to safely get it under nani. Don't go out into the. Yeah, we've had some we've had some pretty significant hail here in Charleston. I mean, quarter size is is not common at all, and we've had uh, up to half dollar size here. And um and there was one event a few weeks ago. I think there was. Uh, I think uh, tennis ball size hail upstate in South Carolina. Wow, that's pretty big for our area. So uh, that sort of segues into another question that I know that we want to ask you. Uh, you know, we covered some hail, but talk about tornadoes in the southeast now um, versus out west, where they have these just massive tornadoes that that touch the ground almost you know systematically. It's a different environment out west. So, what's so different about the southeast, and what's the what's the sort of the mystique about tornadoes here in our region? The big difference, um, meteorologically speaking, between the, the plains and then what we have here in the southeast, most of that can be attributed to the dry line, or for us, the lack thereof. And when we get into the the geeky meteorology of it, the dry line provides what we call um, a little bit of capping aloft, a little bit of warm, dry air, so that we can then, um, once those thunderstorms are able to pass through the, the, the cap, um, then you get this explosive supercellular growth at that point. Um, we don't usually have a dry line in the southeast. It is incredibly rare. I've seen it, I think, once in, in, in Georgia. And that was that tornado I talked about earlier, the, the one that I missed that was ended up being an F3, my second uh, severe weather event. Um, it's like I said, it's incredibly rare. Uh, we also have more deep layer moisture. So when we get tornadoes, they're more likely to be rain wrapped. So you might not be able to see them. Um, we have more terrain, we have more trees. They're harder to see in general, so that makes them a little bit more dangerous. Um, societal impact speaking, we have a lot more mobile homes as well. Uh, we don't have north, south, east, west road networks. Our roads go all over the place. Um, so th there's a lot of complications when we're talking uh, uh, tornadoes, uh, not just from the meteorology side, but also from the, the societal impacts, the human side of this. We, again, we, we rarely have the combination of instability and shear to get the big supercell outbreaks that they get out west. Um, it happens occasionally. Uh, the mountains do sort of break some of that up as well. So even if, say, April 27, 2011, which hopefully hopefully nothing like that will ever happen again, but maybe next generation, you never know, it might, um, that sort of ended along the southern Appalachians. Uh, there was a the strong tornado that went up through like Raven County in extreme northeast Georgia um, over towards Lake Burton, but then that was about as far east as it got. So usually we're going to get what we call these little QLCS tornadoes. And those are incredibly hard to predict, not only because they, they're small and short-lived, but because of the way they develop. Supercell tornadoes, the, the rotation begins in the middle of the storm, so you're able to watch this rotation and then get a long lead time when you issue the warnings. QLCS tornadoes, they tend to build from the ground up. 
So you might not see rotation in the mid-levels until the tornado has already passed. So it's already touched down. They, they might happen between volume scans. We, our volume scans on the radar take anywhere between four and six minutes. So they might happen between those scans and we might not catch it. Um, if we can't see low enough to the ground, we might not ever see it at all. So if it's far away from our radar, and that's just one of the limitations of the radar network that we have now. Um, there are some areas like Charlotte, we do have a TDWR over there, so that can be very helpful. Um, there's a bit of uh, some clutter issues and some um, beam blockage issues, but it, it's better than nothing. Um, so anything that we can get is, is obviously helpful. And uh, you know there, there are going to be radar holes everywhere. There's uh, you know radar holes in Northeast Georgia. There in the Piedmont of the Carolinas. So um, uh, you know it, it is what it is. So that's the problem with these QLCS tornadoes is that sometimes we just, we just don't see them. They spin up too quickly. So you may or may not get a tornado warning out of those. There's also the the a philosophy with some offices, especially out west, where they get the big tornadoes, that they don't even bother issuing warnings when they get QLCSs because it's so hard to predict and it's so it's much less likely to produce significant damage. But again, it's still if a tree falls on your house, uh, your day is ruined. So um, we we do try to we try to do our, our absolute best, but those those can be kind of hard. Um, uh, tropical tornadoes can also be very 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 shallow tornadoes, hard to see on radar. Um, but they're more like mini supercells, so they, they have sort of the same structure that a supercell might, just because of the there's a lot of shear in the atmosphere at that point. But most of our tornadoes do come from uh, these QLCS. They're they're small, EF zero, EF one, maybe EF two events that are very short lived and uh, on the weaker side. Thankfully, if we're going to miss one, at least hopefully it's going to be a weaker one. Very good, very good. I know we're kind of getting up uh, on the nine o'clock hour. I have one more question for you, Tricia, for our viewers out there. Please explain the difference between a severe thunderstorm watch or tornado watch and severe th thunderstorm warning, tornado warnings. Okay, um, a watch means that you need to be prepared. It means that conditions are favorable for these types of events to occur. Anytime there's a watch, winter storm watch, severe thunderstorm, flash flood watch, that just means that the atmosphere is favorable for these types of events. Whereas a warning means that it is imminent or occurring. So that means that you need to be taking action at that point in time. Um, if you see a tornado warning, if you see, we talk about a winter storm warning, once the winter storm warning is issued, it's too late to make preparations. You need to be prepared already. So the same thing with a tornado warning. Um, when you have a tornado watch come out, that's when you need to be going through your preparedness plans, um, your, especially with your family, your kids. One of our big concerns is, that, you know, what if parents are at work and kids are at home? So uh, when we have these outlooks leading up to an event or we have uh, a, a, the latest, a watch issue, that's when you need to be talking about your preparedness activities. It's too late to prepare once a warning is issued. You need to take action at that point. So that's when we want people to go to their safe places, get their shoes, get their helmets, get their, you know, whatever you absolutely need, get to your safe place, and then uh, try to protect your lives. And Trisha, um, I was going to let you, I know you're, you're on shift tonight, so we don't want to keep you much longer. I know you had talked a little bit about you, you had some uh, safety stuff that you had prepared for tonight. Um, maybe we can run through that. Maybe anything else that you feel is important before uh, we let you go? Yeah, um, let's see. Okay, let me, I've got a, I might have to like uh, go through some of this fairly quickly. Um, 
where did I go over here? We're here for you. So how you know you you spend as much time as you want. I, we just don't want to take you away from what what your duties are supposed to be tonight. Do you see the the um, the screen that I have here now about the flying debris? Yes, yes we do. Okay. Um, this is one of the, the, the new things that we're trying to explain to people, and we've, we're all well aware of flying debris, but head trauma is the leading cause of death in a tornado. Um, so we're trying to encourage people not only get into your safe place, but again, take your helmet with you. Uh, if you've got a bicycle helmet, a football helmet, any type of helmet that you might have in your home, take it with you. Um, heaven forbid your home actually get hit, but that's why I said grab your shoes. Um, you might be lounging around the house and then there's a warning. You do not want to be walking around on broken glass and whatever other crap is on the ground after a tornado has gone through. So like what we tell people when, when they're at home, obviously if you've got a safe room, that's the best place or a basement if you have one. If you don't have it, you want to go into a small interior room on the lowest floor of your house. Um, a bathroom is great because there there's additional piping in there that will be uh, connected to areas underneath the house, so it's a little bit more structurally, there's a little bit more integrity there. You want to duck and again cover your head if you have a helmet, um, definitely do that. Um, here's an example that we like to show people. This was also from an F3, this was a QLCS tornado, um, and um, it's back 10 years ago now. It's amazing how quickly time flies. The people that were in this house were in this room right there, and so that's why we tell people to go to an interior room because once you have uplift of the roof structure, then you're going to start losing your exterior walls. Um, and the roof structure will usually fail like at a garage. So your garage door blows out, it lifts, it, there's uplift of that roof structure. The entire roof can come off in one big piece, especially if you don't have hurricane clips in your house. And once you lose your roof, the exterior walls are going to go very quickly after that. So the, those, in, those interior rooms are the safest places to be. If you're outside, we want people to get inside. Now, there's a there's a school of thought. Should you um, should you get in your car? Is it safer to be in your car buckled up, or is it safer to get outside of the car and get in a ditch? And we typically tell people to get in a ditch or a low lying area, but then we've had cases where people have died of flash flooding in a ditch while taking shelter from a tornado. And Unfortunately, that's a very personal decision that people have to make on their own. Um, what do they feel is going to be best for them? Never, 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 never take shelter in an overpass. Um, that's because you, you're actually, uh, it's like the wind tunnel effect. You're actually going to be seeing, seeing an increase in winds um, if you're under an overpass. Um, I think I have some more, yeah, some lightning safety. Obviously, get a build, getting in a building or a car. If your hair sticks up like this, little kids, it's, you know, get down, uh, get out of water. Um, flooding, um, flooding can technically happen everywhere, but the, the big thing that we have problems with is, is people that uh, are crossing flooded roadways, especially at night. And a thing that we like to tell people is if you can't see the lines on the road, then you don't know if the road is still there. Turn around, don't drown. This is this works great to tell kids that because we tell them, tell mommy and daddy to turn around, don't drown. They love the little jingle there. Um, but it, it's, it's not worth your life. Um, it's, you just don't know if, if it's uh, washed out or not. Um, let's see, I don't really have any other safety rules right in here. So, um, like I said, it's, it's a severe thunderstorm, tornado safety rules are pretty much the same. Um, and then there's the flooding and the, and the lightning. Um, just want to have a safe place to go. 
if you're in a mobile home, if you own a mobile home or that's where you live at, um, that is um, that, that's bad news when during severe weather. Uh, it doesn't take, if, especially if the mobile home is not tied down, 60, 70 mile per hour winds will uh, take it off the found out off the piers, um, could roll it. Um, an EF1, EF2 tornado can completely destroy it. If you if you live in a mobile home and there's a tornado watch that's issued, you got to find someplace else to go uh, if there's a warning that happens to be issued or have a storm shelter. I did want to highlight this information. Even before a watch is issued, we're going to have um, the Storm Prediction Center out in Norman, Oklahoma, will issue severe weather outlooks. We very rarely get moderate and high risks out here, but we did have that last week. And um, of course, Anderson County got clobbered uh, with lots of trees down and a, a couple of small tornadoes. And the, the, as we already talked about, Georgia having 77 tornado reports last week, and that's what we get in a high risk and that high risks are extremely rare in the southeast so um, you start need, needing you need to pay attention to all of these risks but when the, it starts turning yellow orange especially red in that purplish fuchsia color um, that's when things get a uh, really interesting on the on the weather side and you need to be prepared for any eventuality um, we try to provide this information as far out as possible. It's available at the Storm Prediction Center's website. We're going to be sending out that information. Um, we send out briefing packages to our emergency management partners. So we try, everybody is usually pretty aware um, if they're weather savvy to begin with. So um, just watch your local, favorite local meteorologist on TV to, to get more updated information, or you can just do it yourself at the SPC's website. Um, we here at uh, Greenville Spartanburg, we can be found on Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, and we are, of course, on the web at weather.gov slash GSP. We love our followers. Um, we actually just crossed uh, 30,000 followers last, last week on Facebook, so uh, we're going to be celebrating with a 30,000 follower cake next week. Um, we're all excited about that. But um, uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you'll find the other offices as well, NWS uh, Charleston, South Carolina, NWS Columbia, NWS Wilmington, North Carolina, Raleigh, uh, Blacksburg. Um, these all cover some counties in North Carolina. Um, Morristown even covers two counties. So um, yeah, we're, we're all on social media. We're all on the web. And for those of you who are already our partners and are in our chat rooms, feel free to engage us on chats on chat if you have any questions uh, for the members of the general public if you have questions send us a tweet anytime message us on Facebook and we'll do our best to answer as quickly as we can well, boys, I, one more. I was, was going to ask one more interior rooms bathtub good or bad bathtub is good um, I am a big fan of uh, people getting in their bathtubs especially if they can again have a helmet and then um, uh, if you can get blankets or a mattress to cover yourself in. I've done several storm surveys where the people have hunkered down in a bathtub and the bathtub got um, lifted and sent away from the house, uh, up, up lifted and I don't know, even rolled sometimes, but the people were able to survive by staying in the bathtub because they've got that reinforcement around them. Well, that sounds like a, a, a show we should do. Maybe uh, maybe we can have you back sometime and just talk about how you guys go the process of, of doing storm surveys. We haven't done a show like that, so I think that would be really interesting 
uh, for some of our followers. Yeah, that, that certainly would be. Um, I can't get my screen share off to get you back on. Um, That's a great yeah. point, Scotty. I like that idea. Yeah, we, yeah we, you could even get some of the um, uh, very seasoned uh, uh, storm surveyors that are out there. Like, for example, our MIC now, Steve Wilkinson, he was in the Jackson, Mississippi office for several years. And so he did um, hundreds, maybe hundreds of storm surveys. He's been, uh, he, he's very, very, very experienced. So he would be a great resource for you. Any of us could probably do it that's done a storm survey, but it would be kind of cool for your listeners maybe to hear from people who have done those kinds of huge surveys with the big tornadoes. We'll have to do that. We'll, obviously, we'll do that after tornado season. We'll, we'll let the next couple of months go by. We, we don't want to bother them then. But, uh, but, but Trish, we, we heard cake, so we're all going to come down and, and uh, join you in, in eating some of that cake next week. So you yeah, just watch right. out for us. But, uh, but on a serious note, we want to uh, say thank you for coming on tonight. Uh, we certainly enjoy it. And, uh, you know, you, great asset. Uh, everybody, all of us, we, we de depend on you guys at the National Weather Service you know, in Greenville, Spartanburg, Charleston, and so forth and so on with, with the different offices that we all work with. So we appreciate your hard work, and I don't think none of you guys in the Weather Service get as much uh, credit as you should because you guys, they're 24-7. You know, there's not a day goes by that the office is not staffed, so we appreciate that. We, we are. One of the stories I love to tell the kids is that I actually issued a tornado warning for Santa Claus, Georgia, on Christmas morning in 2006. Oh, wow. Five, I think, actually. Whatever. Santa Claus, Georgia had a tornado warning in, uh, on Christmas morning. So somebody's always here 24-7. But you know what? It's not just us. This is an, an entire partnership. We use you guys. We use our surrounding offices. We use the media. We use emergency managers. Jeez, emergency managers are huge partners for us. Um, we couldn't do it without our partners. So we appreciate you guys staying as involved as you are. We appreciate um, you letting us have a little bit of your time tonight, and uh, we'll definitely have you back on. You you brought a lot of good information. We've got a lot of good feedback on our Facebook uh, Live and our, our Twitter, uh, Twitter account tonight. I want to say thank you to uh, Rich Rogers, who is a meteorologist down in the Augusta area for watching. Gannon Medwick, he is the chief meteorologist at WECT in Wilmington. So uh, a lot of people watching tonight and uh, giving uh, praise for, for the good information you're giving out so we appreciate having you on tonight oh yeah anytime all right well trish we appreciate it we're going to go ahead and end the show thanks for watching tonight next week we have chris white uh he is a storm chaser in virginia he's going to be joining us on kind of giving us a little bit of uh some storm chasing uh stories that, that he's experienced and, and kind of talk about the art of chasing here in the southeast as we uh, continue uh severe weather awareness month here in the month of april you guys have anything before we close out all right, I think they're good. So everyone, thanks for watching tonight. Make sure to join us next week as uh, Chris White joins us at 8 p.m. on uh, April 19th. Y'all have a great week and a happy Easter to everyone.